0: Well, if we're able to block out at least some of the cultural chaos going on around us and uh, stay anchored to the spiritual beauty of the season, I think there is something very special about Christmas. Very special. It draws our hearts and our minds towards eternal things, towards eternal truths. As we contemplate the Son of God coming to, to earth in the flesh, on the one hand, we're reminded of the whole reason why he had to come in the first place as we look out And we see all the sin and turmoil of this fallen world around us. And at the same time, we're reminded of of God's great love for us, recognizing this immeasurable gift that God has given us in Christ. And so you take that picture, both sides of that coin, and add in the rich fellowship of the saints that we have at this time of year. The history that we get to enjoy that's rooted in all these ancient hymns and carols. Add in time spent with family and friends, there is nothing quite like the Christmas season. So I know that sometimes we dread it. I I would encourage you to try to set that aside and to really begin to enjoy it because it's a time for us, as we sang this morning, to, uh, to, to welcome the advent of Christ, the first advent of Christ. And for all those reasons, that's why we celebrate Advent here at Oak Hill. Not all churches do this, by the way, but here at our church, we believe this is very important. Now, why? Well, first and foremost, because it's designed to help us fix our eyes on Christ during this very hectic and very chaotic and distracting season. But it's also a chance for us to stay connected to our historical roots, to our Christian roots that go back a long, long way. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but the whole idea of Advent, most church historians date it all the way back to the, to the 4th century A.D., Think about that, the fourth century, back to a time when the early church fathers were in the process of establishing this sort of kingdom-wide church calendar, and they were, they were pretty easy, it was pretty simple to, to nail down the date of Easter because it's connected to Passover, right? And that we see in the gospel narratives, but the season of the birth of Christ is not clear in the scriptures. And so the early church connected Christmas with the winter solstice, and they did that because that's the darkest time of the year. The darkest time of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. So that makes sense on two levels. Number one, Christmas represents the coming of the light of the world into this heavy period of darkness. And second, it brought balance to the worship calendar. You have Easter in spring, and now you have Christmas in the wintertime. And so we first see Advent mentioned, get this, at the ri- at the, we see it in writing, actually mentioned by the bishops of the church at the Council of Sargossa in the year 380. AD, It's first mentioned and it's interesting the recommendations of the bishops at that at that time in 380 was that the church should observe uh, Advent and come to worship every single day between December 17th and December 29th every single day. I am really glad we let that go because that sounds exhausting. But over the next 150 years or so, a consistent time frame was established by the ancient church. And over time, we began to see this weekly observance throughout the month of December. Now, the early church had a habit of celebrating Advent with a dual focus in mind. And this is important to understand. In fact, I'll put some words on the screen for you. There it is. The Latin word Adventus, where we get that from, is a translation of the Greek parousia, a New Testament word that we usually connect with the second coming of Christ. That's the word that we tend to say, yeah, the parousia is the second coming of Christ, but it's also a reference to the first coming of Christ. But the ancient church in the first two Sundays of Advent would always start by reflecting on the second coming. That's what we see in the historical record. Disciples would strive to prepare their hearts for Christmas, confess their sins, spend time praying that the Lord would return quickly. And then the last two Sundays of Advent would shift in focus to that first coming, Christ in the manger, and being thankful as we consider God's gift of His Son. So in light of all that, Advent today points to our place today in what we call the church age, between the resurrection of Christ and His future uh, future return. And as you see in front of us, we have five candles on our little Advent table up here. And so we light one each and every week as we get closer to December 25th, and when we light that final and decisive fifth candle, it will officially commemorate the fact that the light of the world has come 2,000 years ago, and we look forward to Him returning very, very soon. So that makes Advent for for us both preparatory and instructive. It informs our entire sense of biblical theology, looking not just at the one moment where God broke into human history, but also at our waiting for Him to come again to consummate his kingdom, when Jesus' reign will finally be on earth as it is in heaven. How's that sound? Sounds good. Okay, there we go. And that brings me to an important aspect of Advent that we sort of need to get out there before we go any further in this, in this series. It's something we need to define up front. And the phrase is now on the screen there. It's this idea of an already not yet framework that we see embedded throughout the pages of Scripture, Old Testament to New Testament. Now, what does that mean, already, not yet? Well, simply put, it refers to the fact that believers are actively taking part in the kingdom of God right now. Amen? But even though the kingdom's not reached its full expression, it's it's gonna be fully expressed at some time in the future. That's the not yet. So in other words, we're already in the kingdom, but the fullness of the glory of that kingdom is Has not yet been realized. Let me give you a couple of passages of scripture that basically describe this type of framework. Hebrews 2 8 and 9 says this. This is a great example. It says, You, the Father, have made him, the Son of Man, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing. That is not subject to him. But but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So you see in there, we have an already. Jesus is crowned as the King of glory, and we have a not yet, because right now not everything has been subjected to him. That remains to be fulfilled in the future. So is Jesus our King? Yes, he is. He is a King, but his kingdom is not yet of this world. That remains to take place. In the same way, 1 John 3, 2 is a great example. It says, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. So again, there's an already there, we are children of God right now, but also not yet. What is it gonna look like when the fullness of that status as children of God comes upon us? What does that future state look like? One more example of this, both Romans 8:30 and Ephesians 2:6: 2:6 say, say this. This is amazing stuff. As believers, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. How's that feel? It's stated as if that's a completed thing. But obviously right now, we're seated here, not in the heavenly realms with Christ. So that remains to be fulfilled. One day, our present reality is going to sync up with that future reality. And the fullness of that problem will be realized. That's a uh, that's an amen moment, a hallelujah, right? That's what we look forward to when it all syncs up together and the fullness of that promise comes to pass. So as you can see on the screen, the title of our series for these four weeks is called Your King is Coming. And I want you to notice the intentional grammar there. It does not say your king has come. It does not say that your king will come someday. It's written in the present tense. Your king is coming. If we were writing that in Koine Greek, it would be baselius erkatai, right? With the verb written in what we call the present indicative, meaning that it's something that's happening in the present, but it has an ongoing continuous process. It's happening now, but it continues on. Make sense? So today and over the next three Sundays, we're going to look at four specific aspects of Advent. Today we're talking about God is revealing himself to us and to the world. Next week, God is redeeming his people. After that, God is judging the world, and finally, God is ruling over all. And in each four of those aspects, we're going to see that there is both an already and there is a not yet, both a present reality and a future fulfillment. So this is going to be quite a journey. I think you're going to enjoy it. And my hope is that in each of these messages, we're going to be able to look at how God moved in the past. We're going to look at how he's moving right now. And of course, we'll look forward to how he will consummate his kingdom in the future, So let's dive into the first aspect. Let's look at how God is revealing himself to us and to the world. Maybe you're like me. For most of my saved life, I've heard people who doubt the existence of God ask questions like this. Here's how the question goes. Why doesn't God do more to show himself to the world? Have you ever had an unbeliever in a conversation? Maybe you're sharing your faith and they say, well, I don't get it. Why doesn't God just make himself really obvious? It's a fair question in my mind, and we ought to have an answer for it. If he wants everyone to know him, why isn't he more clear? Why not do something so big and so spectacular that it removes all doubt? Or just appear to every single person individually so that there's no room for any objection to even be put on the table? Why not do that? It's interesting, while I was preparing for this message, I I did a Google search on this question and I ended up sort of looking into a a finished chat room uh, of a whole bunch of people asking questions like this. And I always think it's interesting to see the thought process of unbelievers. And uh, one girl wrote this and I thought it was interesting. She wrote, it feels like God is hiding from us. If he's so desperate for people to worship him and if he tortures people forever in hell for not believing in him, Why would he hide himself from us? It just doesn't make sense. That's a pretty common feeling out there among people who don't know the Lord. One other person in the thread then wrote this. Well, I think God does reveal himself to us. He just doesn't do a very good job of it. And and you can forgive the ignorance, right? The sort of the naivete because these are folks that don't have the spirit. How can they understand, right? But some people believe that God needs a better marketing agent right? He needs a new branding strategy that would attract more people to him. So we ought to have an answer for that. Well, the first thing we can say is that there's no way that finite creatures like us could ever know God in any personal way unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. There's no way. We just can't know because we can't, see him or perceive him with our senses. We could speculate, of course, and people love to do that. We love to to speculate and guess. We could philosophize about what we think God might be like, but at the end of the day, without him disclosing himself to us, it's all just speculation and guessing. And to make things even harder, we're told in the Bible that natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit, right? It's all foolishness to him. Because such things can only be understood through the spirit, which natural man doesn't have. So per- so natural man's in a bind. And the fact is, God has to take that initiative to reveal himself to us if we're going to know him in any meaningful way. Now, it's not unreasonable that God would do that. Remember, he's, he's made us in his image. He's made us as personal beings that communicate with one another. And so it makes sense that he would also want to communicate with us. But here's the problem. Here's where we go wrong when we consider this whole thing human beings insist that God should reveal himself in ways that make sense to us, right? In ways that align with the way we think. We think God should interact with us and do all things for us in ways that we should be able to obviously perceive and understand, and if he doesn't do it, then we judge that as unimportant. In other words, we expect God to think and act just like we do, but God is not a man, right? He's not a man. His ways are not our ways. He's the sovereign of the universe and therefore the very definition of sovereignty is he does as he pleases. He does according to his will. He does as he is decreed. And so he acts according to a much bigger picture than we can even fathom, right? We've got this really narrow tunnel of understanding, but he acts according to eternal omniscience. And so He has a plan that was decreed and set in motion even before the foundations of the world were laid. And he is executing that plan within time and space. And so here's the thing. God reveals everything that he intends to reveal about himself. He he reveals exactly what we need as his creatures to know him. Not according to what we want. Not according to what we would draw it up. I mean, have you ever played this game? If I was God, I would do it this way. That's not the way he operates. He operates according to his sovereign will alone. And frankly, we should just say this, he's under no obligation to even interact with finite creatures like us in a way that we can perceive. If he does, and he does, it's only because of his grace and his merciful nature, amen? So when we talk about God needing to do more to show himself to the world, we're assuming way too many things. And the truth is, and this is a hard truth, I know, it's not God's will to save every single human being on the planet if it was his will every single person would be saved but it's not his will the Bible's very clear about this jesus himself talks about it and even though the reason behind it remains a mystery to us it's god's sovereign will and so we live in this tension we have to we have to accept what the word says right we have to trust that god is good we have to trust that his ways are greater and higher than ours So yes, he could appear to every single person individually. He could appear in the sky like some 900 foot tall Jesus and shout from the heavens, I am God, believe in me. He could do that, but he's sovereignly chosen not to. Can we rest in that? Can we rest in the fact that that's his prerogative to reveal himself as he chooses? By the way, even if he did reveal himself in some crazy spectacular way, do you you know that most people still would not submit to him? We know that from Scripture as well. We know that based on man's fallen nature. We know just by looking at the gospel record. We look at how the crowds heard Jesus teach. We, we look at how the crowds saw his miracles, perceived them with their very eyes, and yet turned away from him, right? We see Judas, who saw all of this up close and personal, and yet betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, That's the truth about man. We read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, and Jesus himself declares this amazing truth. He says, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And that's true. It's proven to be true. The reason I use that phrase, 900-foot Jesus, just a moment ago is because back in 2012, the very famous atheist Richard Dawkins was asked this question. What proof would you need in order to believe in Jesus? And here's how he responded. He said, that's a very difficult question because I used to think that if somehow a great big giant 900 foot Jesus with a huge voice suddenly strode in and said, I exist and here I am. And then he paused. He paused, he thought about it and then he finished his sentence by saying, but even then I actually wonder if that would do it for me. And that tells you everything you need to know about man's rebellious." sinful nature. So that is the truth about God's plan to reveal himself, and and we as his creatures need to rest in his sovereign plan to do so, right? So how has he revealed himself? Let's look at some ways. Grab your Bible. We're going to go to Romans chapter 1. What I want to do is talk about how God has revealed himself, is revealing himself, (laughs) and want to do it in historical stages. So let's start in Romans chapter 1. We'll start at the beginning, even before the first coming of Christ. Go to Romans 1 and find verse 18. This is a well-known section of Scripture, very instructive, very important for our biblical theology. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. There's that word, revealed, apocalypto, right, in the Greek. Revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, I'm going I'm to lay aside that verse because it's going to come back in week three of our series. I'm, gonna come, I'm just going to lay... I know it's hard. I'm just going to lay that aside. Look at verse 19 now, and you'll see one of the ways that God has revealed himself. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident where? Within them. Within them. For God made it. He caused it to be evident to them. So the very people who, in verse 18, are suppressing the truth about God... Do so, get this now, in spite of having an intrinsic knowledge of God's existence and his moral law. Is that hard to believe? It's written intrinsically on their heart, and yet they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. It shouldn't be surprising because the human heart wants what the human heart wants, right? And so we'll suppress, we'll push aside all of that knowledge in order to, to have our desires met. It's written on our hearts. And then this principle Paul expands on in Romans chapter two, in the next chapter, he writes, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively, see that word? Instinctively, the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written where? In their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. It's written on their hearts. It's in their conscience. Again, we'll get more into this in week three, but know first of all that God has revealed himself to all of mankind within them, in the conscience. Second thing, he's revealed himself in the created order. Let's keep going in Romans 1, look at verse 20. The created order. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Clearly seen being understood, right, being, being intellectually, mentally appraised through what has been made so that they are without excuse. This is, of course, what we call general revelation or natural revelation. The creation itself reveals God's existence. Now, not enough to know him personally, right? We need more information. We need more, and that will come. But enough to remove man's excuse and to make him accountable for his rebellion and his sin, Now, why is it incumbent upon man to look around at his surroundings and clearly perceive that God exists? Well, the obvious question for every human being on this earth, and this is a great way to open up a discussion, the obvious question is, look around, where did all these things come from? I mean, if you haven't had that conversation with an unbeliever, that's a great place to start. Tell me what you think. Get the conversation started. Rather than preaching at them, ask a question. Where did all this come from? Ready, go. The universe that we see the planet that we're inhabiting it all had to have a source right logically we start with a very simple presence look around the physical world exists there is tangible matter all around us we can see it we can touch it we can smell it we can taste it things of mass and volume that are made up of all kinds of subatomic particles right Ross he said yes he agreed So, friend, what caused all this to come into being? Logic and experience tells us you can't get something from nothing, right? So there's got to be an ultimate source. And I know people say, well, there was this, and it produced that, and then that thing produced this, and they can go on and on ad infinitum, right? But eventually, you've got to get to the, the logical place where you cannot have an infinite number of causes going back into infinity, it's, it's just an illogical thing. At some point, there was a first cause, right? It, there was a first cause, and that first cause had to be uncaused. Does that make sense? In other words, by necessity, by necessity, the first cause has to be eternal in nature. Whatever that first cause is, it has to be eternal. It has to start somewhere. And if that's true, how many choices are there? Two. Either the universe is eternal, and even science has disproven that, or there's an eternal creator and designer who made the universe and everything in it. And that is the point of Paul's, what Paul's saying in Romans 1.20. The created order, everything you see around you is so awe-inspiring that man ought to be able to look around and say, okay, I see the creator's what? Invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature. Look at the design that's built into it. Look at the complexity of it all. Look at the laws of nature, the cycles and the regular patterns. Look at the intricacy of the human body. And once you've done that, then look at the even greater question. Look at the human soul. Where did that come from? Right? We might be able to look at the physical and say, well, there was some natural process, but how do you explain the human soul? How did that happen? Could nothingness and random chance produce all this, right? This is Paul's point in Romans 1. Some of you know the the very famous story of Lee Strobel, who was a hardcore atheist and author who wrote against the things of God and then one day came to faith in Christ. His explanation for it is so good, it's worth looking at. He says this, Essentially, I realized that to stay an atheist, I would have to believe that nothing produces everything, that non-life produces life, that randomness produces fine-tuning, that chaos produces information, unconsciousness produces consciousness, and non-reason produces reason. Those leaps of faith were simply too big for me to take. In other words, the Christian worldview accounted for the totality of the evidence much better than the atheistic worldview. Amen and amen, right? Amen. The heavens declare the glory of God, David said, to put it much more simply than Lee trouble, right? But much more profoundly, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Variety, complexity, beauty, majesty, it is all built into the created order. And nothing is too large and nothing is too small to show us day after day God's character. You could go to the Grand Canyon and see something amazing and then you can go into your backyard and look at a little tiny ant colony and be amazed by God and see his character. But for so many people, They just stumble through life blind. They take everything around them for granted as if it all just popped into existence. And that's why we need to talk to people about these things. Honestly, the world is so saturated with God's goodness, power, and creativity, you can't miss it if you pay attention. But people don't see it. I've I've heard it described as they're like fish that swim in the sea, but they have no idea that they live in water. That's what people, unbelievers, are like in our world, so we need to talk about it. So let's finish the text then in Romans 1. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, now that's not a statement of a personal knowledge. He's going back to his argument to say they know God on the inside in their conscience and they know him on the outside by just looking around at the creation. Yet it says they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And became futile because they didn't start at the right place with the right premise, the foundational premise that God is. They didn't start there, so their their ability to think and their ability to reason. And are we not seeing this today? People cannot think anymore. They've lost the ability of reason. And and, and all of their their speaking becomes unsound and fruitless. It goes on, and their foolish heart was darkened. That's, That's even heavier, isn't it? Their hearts were darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So they, they fell into idolatry. That's the natural course if you reject the existence of God, to fall into idolatry. And in that state of foolishness, look at that exchange they made. That's a powerful word. They exchanged things. They, they turned away from the living God and they turned to material things. Embracing created things rather than the one who made those things. It's utter foolishness, right? And we see it happening every single day around us. So, recapping. First of all, God has revealed himself in the conscience of man and in the creation around him. But now we're going to move from what we call general revelation to something greater and more personal, to special revelation. Grab your Bibles again. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We read this passage in our call to worship this morning, but it's worth taking a closer look at. In fact, I think this is one of the most important passages in the New Testament, to be honest, because it addresses the question of what we should expect from God in terms of, of knowing Him, in terms of Him revealing Himself to us. It makes a very bold statement. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, what I love about Hebrews Whoever the author is, and we could debate it after the sermon, that's fine. Whoever he is, he does not mess around with any formal greeting or introduction. He dives right into it. And like Genesis 1-1, he starts with some basic observations. First of all, God is, right? And second, he's done something very specific, just like in Genesis 1-1. Long ago, the author says, Yahweh spoke, spoke to his chosen people, Israel to the fathers, the ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He spoke to this one particular people through hand-selected men who function basically as his mouthpiece, these people we call prophets. Now, that's very different from the general revealing, right? This revelation is targeted at a particular group of people and communicated in a very special way. This is where it gets personal. This is why we call it special revelation. First, God spoke in many portions, meaning that he spoke at different times in history, And he spoke in different amounts according to the need. That's why when you look at Scripture, you see more speaking here and less speaking there, right? Many portions. But also, second, he spoke in many ways, meaning God used all kinds of ways to communicate with his people. Very specific ways, right? He used everything from dreams and visions to a burning bush to a donkey, right? He used miracles and angelic appearances But most notably, he revealed himself through his prophets and through the written word. Now, earlier we sang this beautiful hymn that Grant introduced us to, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Let me share a little bit about that song because it parallels what we're talking about today. The roots of that song go all the way back to somewhere between the 8th and 9th centuries. 8th and 9th centuries. And during that period, it was the staple of Advent worship for churches all through Europe. Back in the day, the current melody that we sing is believed to have come out of France somewhere in the 15th century, and then about 400 years later, it was finally translated to English. So, this is an amazing thing. When we sing this carol, we are joining in this this ancient ritual, Advent ritual, that is 11 or 12 centuries old. That is amazing. We're talking about we sing the song with saints who have suffered great persecution, even been martyred for their faith. We are joining with saints from the past all over this globe, whether it's Egypt or Syria or Asia Minor or Greece or Uganda. We're joining with the saints as we sing this well known carol. Now, many of the references within the song are connected to the Old Testament prophets through whom God spoke. Let's look at the lyric again, put it up on the screen. There it is O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Yisrael. Now, that term Emmanuel comes straight out of Isaiah chapter 11, right? When the prophet spoke to the wicked king Ahaz of Judah, prophesying a future time when a particular child would be born of a virgin. Did I say Isaiah 11? Isaiah 7, right? I know you're all looking at the screen going, wait, Isaiah 7 14. He spoke to this wicked king, Ahaz, the king of Judah, and he told him about this future time when a particular child would be born pretty miraculously, of a virgin. True? And he says this child will be known by this very unique title, Emmanuel. Now, when you break that down in the Hebrew, you have the prefix im, which means with, and on the suffix, you have the generic name for God, which is el. So you put that together, Emmanuel, you have God with us, and it's a cry of longing from the people of the land. God, Lord, be present in our midst. Come and be present with us. Now, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is one of my favorite Christmas songs. It's got to be at least top two or three for me. And what makes it so powerful, maybe you heard this as we were singing it, it's got sort of an eerie tone to it, doesn't it? It's not super exuberant and bright like joy to the world, right? It's got sort of an eerie feel to it. It reminds us of the downcast spiritual condition of Israel in the midst of the desolation that they were experiencing under Gentile rule. And so the lyrics, you heard words like misery. You heard words like loneliness in this exile that they're suffering through. It's a song about a people crying out to Yahweh to further reveal himself by sending the long-awaited and promised Messiah to be with them, to be in their midst, and to save. That's what Israel's crying out for. Later in the song, we hear this lyric, right? O come thou root of Jesse's tree, an ensign of thy people, B, that comes out of uh, Isaiah chapter 11. In fact, here's here's the verse that comes out of. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father, right? A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. With righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And then Jesse's mentioned a second time in the hymn. We didn't sing this verse, but it comes down to, O come thou rod of Jesse, for thine own from Satan's tyranny. And again, it echoes uh, uh, from the the text of Isaiah chapter 11. It says this, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So in, in in Isaiah chapter 11, and in this song that we just sung, we see justice, we see compassion, but we also see God's wrath being promised. All of those go together, and we celebrate that in this song. So God has generally revealed himself in the conscience of man and in the created order, and to Israel, he's revealed himself in this very special way through the prophets, right? All the prophets, from Moses all the way to Malachi. Make sense? Make sense? Now, let's continue on in our passage in Hebrews. Look at verse 2. Hebrews 1, 2. What you'll see here is a contrast being drawn between how God revealed himself in what we call the pre-Messianic era through the fathers in the prophets and how he has revealed himself in the current age that we live in, what we call the church age. Verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Friends, don't read past this. See this really clearly. We live right now in the last days. We live in the last days. And the implications of this statement in verse two are profound about what we know about God today and how he's operating in our world. Here's the thing you have to know. Jesus is the decisive ultimate revelation of God to mankind. He is the decisive and ultimate revelation of God. And he is the final revelation that we should expect to receive. He's the final revelation that we should expect to receive. He is the exact representation of God's nature, it says. Think about that. He is the radiance of God's glory. What could possibly top that in terms of God revealing himself to send his son, who is the exact representation of his being, what could top that? That's why Jesus said, we've been looking at it in our John series, he who has seen me has seen the Father. What more does mankind need in order to believe and to be saved? The late great F.F. F. Bruce said this. This is a great statement. He says, God's revelation was not completely uttered until Christ came. But when Christ came, the word spoken in him was indeed God's final word. The story of divine revelation is a story of progression up to Christ, but there is no progression beyond him. That is true. So in Christ, there's both continuity and there's contrast. The continuity is that God has been speaking through his servants, right? First in the prophets and then in the son. But the contrast could not be greater because the prophets are just men, right? They're sinners. And Christ is God of very God, perfectly holy, the words of the prophets were preparatory. Jesus is the final statement. So there's both continuance and there's contrast. Does that make sense? In Christ, all of the Old Testament types and promises that are looked forward to, the restoration of God's presence with his people, it is all fulfilled in Christ. Okay, so Paul writes in Galatians 4, when the fullness of the times came, and that's such a great, such a great statement, the pleroma, the fullness of the times of the times. When it came, God sent forth his son, right? Born of a woman to take on flesh. And then Luke provides the details, right? It's worth reading because it's Christmas time. I'm just going to read it a little bit. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. By the way, the greatest of all the Roman emperors, right? At the height of what we call the Pax Romana, God sends forth his son. It's an amazing thing. That a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Right? Because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I, I always laugh at that story because is, it is such a concise rendering of that story. But can you imagine the trauma <laughs> that Joseph and Mary went through and all that, that took place there? But it's such a concise, Luke gives us this very concise story. Yeah, she was with child. Yeah, it came, it came time. Done. Okay, we'll move on. And of course, Matthew then provides the essential connection back to, back to Isaiah 7. He says, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So we're making these connections between Old Testament and new. Listen, here's the thing. Yahweh had done the unthinkable. I know you're used to the Christmas story, but really stop and think about it. Yahweh had done the unthinkable. He had revealed himself, not in a general way, but in a specific way, and not just through mortal man, but he himself came to planet Earth. That's a mic drop. I mean, stop it. Don't, don't just read past that. He came to Earth, the living, breathing, flesh and blood representation of the eternal God put on flesh, and was born physically of a woman in a manger. God made his dwelling with us. And John makes this amazing statement. He says, and we beheld his glory. Imagine that. They saw his glory up close and and, and personal. The one and only son of Yahweh, full of grace and truth, John says. We saw his glory. And then John adds this thing. it, It makes me laugh. It's almost out of surprise. He says, no one has seen God at any time. But then he says, but this Jesus, he exegeted God to us. He explained God to us. He showed to us who God is. That's amazing stuff. The Christmas story is an amazing story. If you just take enough time to step back and consider it, it's amazing. So let's go back to our Sunday hymn now, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Listen to this lyric that we sang. O come thou dayspring. come and cheer our spirits by Advent here. Now, that beautiful title, Dayspring, comes from Luke's gospel. Chapter 1, verse 78, we have John the Baptist's father, Zacharias. Remember, he's, he prophesies about the, the future role of his son, John, in the life of the Messiah. And here's what Zacharias says. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Right? What a privilege that is. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the dayspring from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So this hymn expresses again Israel's hope that soon Isaiah's promise is gonna come to fruition, that for God's people who are living in this dark time, this period of darkness, they're living in the constant shadow of death that the Messiah, the dayspring of light, will come and he will establish peace and guide them into prosperity. Wow. So all this revealing, right, both in the Old Testament and now at the time of Christ, what about today? Can we talk about the present? What about today? When we speak in the present tense and say, your king is coming, does that mean that God is revealing Himself to us today? The answer is both no and yes. Is God revealing Himself to us today? No, in one sense, but absolutely in another. Remember, Hebrews 1 2 is the definitive statement. In this age, the church age we live in, these final days, God has spoken to us in His Son. We should not expect anything else. Make sense? That is the ultimate revelation. That is all we need to know who God is and how we can be saved, how we can be reconciled in a relationship with Yahweh. So no, no new revelation is necessary. And yet that very same revelation of God the Son continues today. Even, even this morning, the revelation of God's Son continues on. A revelation of God that happens really in two ways. First of all, through God's word and second, by God's spirit. That same revelation marches on. God continues to speak and reveal himself today, mainly through his word, right? And when we talk about the word, both Jesus, the logos of God, but also the written word, right? The the God-breathed scriptures. You have it in your lap or in your hand. Again, don't pass right over that. The God-breathed scriptures, right? From the mouth of God, inspired, it is in your lap and in your hand. The revelation of God's son continues in the word. And yet we don't pick it up as often as we should. And yet we don't study it, even though it's the God-breathed word of God. But the Bible is sharp, isn't it? It's a double-edged sword, the scriptures say. It's alive, it's powerful. It cuts between soul and spirit. It exposes the innermost thoughts and desires of a man, according to scripture. It's useful for teaching. It's useful for rebuking and for correcting. It's useful for training in righteousness. It equips us for every good work which God has set forth for us to walk in. Now, we know that it's foolishness to those who are perishing, right? But to us, those of us being saved, it's the very word of God, the very power of God, the very power of God. And by the power of God's spirit, the word goes out and it brings a message of salvation to those whom God has purposed to save. The Spirit calling, the Spirit drawing, the Spirit regenerating the hearts of sinners, the Spirit using the word to produce new life in Christ. Yeah, we don't expect a new revelation of God, but the revelation of God the Son continues to this day. That's our job, is it not, as ambassadors for Christ? To continue that revelation, to continue to to bring that out to to the masses, to the sinners, to the ends of the earth. Because every man and every woman needs to hear it. All right, so let's summarize real quickly. Especially, God has revealed himself in the past to Israel and through the first advent of Christ. And today, he is still revealing himself through the word of God and through the spirit. Finally this morning, let's talk about the future. Let's talk about the future. Your king is coming, friends. He's coming. Are you awake to that truth? Are you awake to it? Are you anticipating it? Do you live your life in anticipation of his return. Are you prepared for the day? Scripture asks that question all the time. Are you awake? Are you alert? Are you prepared for the day of the Lord? See, with the first arrival of Emmanuel, we learn that redemption has come and the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. The process is unfolding now, right? The sacrifice is finished. True? True? Jesus said it himself, the sacrifice is finished, the precious blood has been shed, the debt for sin has been paid in full, forgiveness has been granted, God's wrath has been removed for all who trust in Christ alone by faith. That has happened. That's the already, but there remains the not yet. So we know that our future hope is certain. It's certain. And that gives us all the reasons that, that we need to rejoice today. Rejoice, rejoice, the song goes, Right? We can rejoice in the already, even though each day tribulation still surrounds us. This is the secret to bearing up under persecution and tribulation and trial and hard times. We can still rejoice. Yes, death is around us. Yes, disease and tragedy are a terrible part of our current existence. Sorrow touches all of us. We've even seen that this morning within our own church family. Sorrow touches all of us. It's true, Satan is still prowling around. It's true that our our flesh is still warring against the spirit. All of that is part of the already. And so we we groan inwardly, right? And we wait for the not yet, for the fullness of our adoption as sons and daughters, for the redemption of our bodies. We live here, but we look forward to that. Isn't that true? So there remains in us a longing in our hearts to cry out Maranatha. To cry out, come Lord Jesus, because we long to be with him in our heavenly home. And if you don't long for that, you need to wake up. This world is not your home. We need to long for that heavenly home. We didn't sing this lyric this morning, but there is a great line in the song. It goes like this. Oh, come thou key of David. Come and open wide our heavenly home our key of David. Now that title draws a connection way back to Isaiah chapter 22, but it connects forward to Revelation chapter three. Here's what it says. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. He says this, and then it goes on to talk about how this particular church in Philadelphia, which is the sixth church of the seven churches of Revelation, They're addressed in the opening chapters of the book. And this church, it says, has kept God's word. They have not denied the name of Jesus. So the Lord exhorts him, hold fast to your faith so that your crown of life is not snatched from you. And if they persevere, Jesus promises them a place in the eternal city, the new Jerusalem. And that's where the key of David comes in. The key of David implies ruling over the city of David, which is Jerusalem. It is ultimately ruling on the throne of Israel and Judah. It's something that's promised only to God's Messiah as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the key of David. This is the picture of our king, an eternal king ruling over an eternal kingdom, the key of David. So we cry out to our king, open wide our heavenly home. Open wide. We long to be there with you. So as we sing this morning, and we'll sing it again, and we declare the glory of the first advent of Christ, let it sort of build a fire in you, a desire for the second coming of Christ. Don't stop just at the Christmas story, but look forward to his great return, to the consummation of all things, because that's a desire and a hope that we actually share with the saints of the Old Testament who cried out that the Messiah and the King would come quickly, that he would come and wipe away every tear from their eyes. And finally, finally, make all things right. We say the same thing today. This morning's Christmas carol captures both the mystery and the wonder of the Christian life that we're living in right now. We're living in it right now, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel, already but not yet. Are we confident in our hope? Are we confident in our hope? Are we confident in the promises of God? Are we confident that our King truly is coming soon? Bow your heads, Father. With with one heart, we uh, we stand before you this morning as a grateful people, knowing, Lord, that you had no obligation to save us, no obligation to interact with us as as creatures, and yet, Lord, because of your great grace and your mercy and your compassion and your long suffering nature, Lord, you have. You have given us all the information that we need to know who you are, to not only know you, but to love you, to worship you, to interact and have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. We're so thankful this morning for Emmanuel, that you stepped out of heaven in your great humility and took on flesh and and came to us and, and you pitched a tent and you dwelt with man. And you've left us a written record so that we can know you even more. Lord, If we're not thankful this morning, make us a grateful people. If we haven't thought these things through, Lord, cause us to fall to our knees in awe of you. Lord, make this Christmas time, if if we've already gotten caught up in the craziness of the season or if we've never really had a time of worship during the Christmas season, Lord, I pray for myself or everyone in this room that it might be different this year, that we would fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we would worship you as you deserve. Help us to do that even now as we sing, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.